welcome to Turn the Page, the official podcast of the Syosset Public Library. Welcome back to Turn the Page. I'm your host today, Jen, and I'm joined by an extremely accomplished and talented writer who is here to share a book that just really, like, took over my my last 36 hours, really, like, consumed my life. And I am so excited to get to know her in this book. So let's talk about it. Uh, Hi, welcome to the show. Could I please ask you to introduce yourself and your book? Hi, thank you so, so much for the invite. I am excited to be here. Uh, my name is Premi Mohammed. I am an Edmonton-based author and scientist. Uh, I'm currently also the writer-in-residence at the Edmonton Public Library. And I write sci-fi, fantasy, horror, and books that are a mashup of all of the above. And I have something like 50-something short stories out in the world as well. Wow. And the book is... The Butcher of the Forest, which is out from Tor.com and Titan Books in the UK in uh, February 2024. Oh, yeah, it's a really amazing body of work. And this is such an interesting addition to it. And I'm wondering if we could start, um, as I usually do, with you telling us a little bit about um, the journey to this book. Where did this project um come from? You know, I'm always hesitant to ask about like where ideas come from because that's unanswerable. But like, what was this book's inception point? Was it an image or a character or or something? <laughs> yeah, this was a weird one for me. Um, and I'm kind of hoping it'll end up in a very specific Wikipedia article. But uh, I actually had a dream one night. And you know how dreams don't make sense? They just have the dream logic. And you can't really usually pull a story out of a dream unless you want to write a surrealist novel but there was a very clear image in the dream that I remembered and and one line of I guess dialogue of somebody saying something just behind me and I didn't see who was saying it and I woke up and I you know made a note of it on my phone and I was like gee that could make a neat little neat little story maybe um and so I kind of worked backwards from that the image that I had was of the throne room and of the skulls on the wall and the throne against the back wall, a stone wall. And I kind of, you know, took it back into the world of consciousness and thought, well, what are we looking at here? Is this like a castle? Is this a medieval story, a historical story? Maybe this is a fairy tale. Maybe this is one of those evil kings that we read about in fairy tales. Um, and, and the words had been something like, you know, but are the children innocent of the sins of the father and you know my first thought was well I don't know what children what father so that literally is where the book came from um I worked on it I was very very excited once I thought you know oh let me write some weird fairy tale type book about um about children and a father and something that happens to one of them and and sins historical sins let's talk about that um, I worked on it for about three weekends for about, I don't know, five sessions of writing, five, six sessions of writing. And I cleaned it up um, and I threw it at my agent and he was like, where did this come from? You're not supposed to be writing this. You're supposed to be writing something else. <laughs> but uh, at the same time, when I had had the dream and I'd, um, I think I had tweeted about it at the time, uh, an editor at Tor had said, you know, I would be interested in at least looking at that. 
So we sent it to him first. That was Jonathan Strain. And um, they ended up acquiring it, which was very exciting. So the book came from a dream into the real world, like something from a fairy tale. And it's a perfect story for this book. That's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> wow. And I, you know, it did sort of give me a, like, it, it did blow my mind slightly because while I was reading it, I was sort of thinking like, you know, that like, um, how do I say this? You know, there was a pitch that I read that was like, uh, really caught my eye early on that it is like Hansel and Gretel meets Annihilation. And it, as I was reading, it sort of like sparked this thought that like, you know, Annihilation is kind of in itself like a dark fairy tale. And then mm. also that like dark fairy tales are kind of cosmic horror, like medieval <laughs> cosmic horror a little bit. <laughs> and that like totally blew my mind. So can you talk a little bit about like, yeah, what you're doing with genre here and like various <laughs> conventions and how you're using them in interesting ways? Yeah, I I set out to kind of like, A, I guess, see if I could write a fairy tale without ever using the words fairy. Um, so again, if you went to Varys and said, you know, the the, the Elm Ever is full of fairies, she'd be like, it's full of what? what? What's that? You know, because, you know, the woods are occupied. It's just not people living there. It's inhabitants. <laughs> that's, that's what you do. Um, <laughs> I didn't really intend for it to be a horror story initially, but the the idea of these sort of child-consuming, dangerous woods, that too is very cosmic horror. You know, that's very Algernon Blackwood, The Willows. That's very, um, it's also even kind of folk horror, the idea that the land that sustains us can turn on us in a split second. And folk horror and cosmic horror, of course, you know, are, are like this because it's all about things that are older than us and bigger than us and know things that we cannot possibly know. And that's Ferris's whole problem, really, going back into the woods is not that she just knows things from the previous trip, but that she knows there's so much else that she hasn't been introduced to. And so, uh, you know, I saw... A review the other day, I think in Locus, where the reviewer was talking about, well, Varys has all these rules going in, but they obviously can't mean anything because she breaks them all. No, she breaks them out of desperation mm. and because the forest and its inhabitants go out of its way to continue to fool her and trick her and pull the rug out from under her and show her how much she cannot know compared to this extremely old, ancient, more or less antagonistic piece of land. Um, and I played with the structure as well. Um, I ended up kind of not wanting to make it shaped exactly, you know, like Freytag's pyramid, uh, with the, the climax coming very close to the end. Instead, I wanted to play with that idea of trees in the book. So, you know, what Vera sets out and her aunt makes her three small cups of tea and three eggs with three herbs for luck. It's very part of their culture. Mm. So, Varys doesn't realize till too late that she has to encounter three obstacles or puzzles to get to the children and then three to get them back out. So, you know, what seems like the climax comes in the middle of the book. And she, obviously not knowing that she's a fictional character, isn't aware that that's what's happening. And, and again, that's very horror, too, because most of the scary things in horror come from us not knowing what the danger is. 
that is an excellent point. And when you were talking about, you know, the fact that you never use the word fairy, it reminded me of the way that like zombie stories don't use the word zombie usually they don't. because it's yeah. unknowable in their world. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, you know, it's a walker. It's a shambler. It's the undead. They don't know the word zombie. They've never seen a zombie movie. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, like it, it is almost like a it's like a primer on surviving a fairy tale without using that word. Mm-hmm. So you could talk a little bit about Varys and the setting, you know, because I'd love to know what goes into went into shaping both of them, because I feel like there's a really interesting relationship here between the protagonist and like the particular challenges that Varys faces uh, in the forest. So could you talk about maybe like the dynamic between them, if that makes sense? Yeah. Um, this is very much also, you know, aside, apparently it's very ambitious for a novel, aside from being a horror story, aside from being a fairy tale, this is also a story about colonialism and anti-colonialism because Varys is very much being coerced. So the story starts with horror. Her agency has been taken away from her. And this is, again, because the the colonist, the tyrant, who has conquered her valley, um, his children are the ones who've gone missing. And so he has this power to say, you have to do what I say, or else I will kill your remaining family and probably the rest of the village if I feel like it. And it's just... This, this power imbalance that her valley has always been subjected to, people who came in and tried to conquer them, in most cases got assimilated, and now they just live there now. But this, this most recent invasion has been very violent. Her parents are both dead. Um, you know, everyone else in her family is dead. It's, uh, it's very fresh in the memory. And then you also have the dynamic of um, the insiders versus the outsiders. The people of her village um, are very well aware of how dangerous the woods are. So they just stay out of them. They haven't had a child go missing for years. Um, the tyrant and his people don't know that. And it's another case where you see it repeated again and again and again throughout history. Is people show up, assume they know better than the inhabitants, end up suffering the consequences, and then force the inhabitants to fix the problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, you know, at, at their own cost, usually at the cost of their lives. And I kept thinking about that, about how much Varys must resent what she's doing, how much she feels she's forced to do it. Um, and then the conflicting, you know, thoughts of, well, they are children, though. Mm -hmm. They're not part of the invasion. They weren't part of the killing. At the same time, though, you know, if you go and get them, what are they going to go do in the future? Are they just going to continue this cycle? Are they going to keep oppressing her people? Yes, probably, because that's what they're being raised to do. So um, there's kind of a a very modern moral quandary for Varys. Um, You know, the the type of ethics we think about a lot, but they never seem to bother with in fairy tales. (laughs) Yeah. And the setting, too, is part of that, because, you know, when you read a fairy tale, even if you know it came from, like, rural France or something, it's still very much set in the world of the fairy tale which is not a real place mm-hmm. and so that's that's kind of what i was going for with with this place there's definitely trees there are definitely animals <laughs> but where specifically is it set and when is it set little vague you know they they've apparently just figured out um guns so could be like the 1300s equivalent in this place i don't know <laughs> 
<laughs> that was really actually funny because when I read that line, I was like, oh, to live in a world and not know what guns are, you know, yeah. not, like really wish I lived in like the 13th or 14th century, but like that framing. <laughs> um, I really love the point that you made about it sort of being having this post-colonial sort of view because it makes a really subtle point, I think, with the child characters that like, you know, privilege protects you from a lot, but it is also like, it, it can make you very vulnerable and give mm -hmm. you a lot of spots that aren't quite in your awareness, you know, and I think mm -hmm. was achieved so subtly. So could you talk like a little <laughs> bit more about that angle? Because um, another thing I thought of was that like, you know how we sometimes talk about like uh, revisionist Westerns, it's sort mm -hmm. of like revisionist post-colonial <laughs> fairy tale a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, it kind of seems like it's going to go that way uh, in particular because, you know, the young girl is the heir. Mm -hmm. uh, and so she's being raised, cultivated to be exactly like her father. And uh, I always knew it was going to have, you know, the ending that it did, but uh, it, it's, it's sort of the fairy tale vibe of it too. I think that, some people change and some people find themselves incapable of change and one has to ask oneself why and in the end i think it all comes down again to power i've i've just spent like the last couple of years thinking about this particularly in in some of my books like what is it that that's so intoxicating about power the concept of power people will give up you know, their families, their loved ones, wives, husbands, children, um, money, uh, security, safety, um, leisure, um, just to have power over other people. I don't understand it. <laughs> like, like, why wouldn't you rather have all those other things, which are the things that make life worth having? Mm -hmm. um, so this is where we see the, the tyrant coming into the story is he's not thinking of his children as people lost in the forest and he would do anything to get them back. Um, he's not the, the doting father. Um, he's thinking in terms of power and his legacy and, you know, get them back. They are my heirs, that kind of thing. So I also kind of thought, you know, we don't see a ton from the kid's point of view because they're very young, you know, they're, they're sort of like, whatever I said, nine, seven or something like that. But this is how they're being raised. How do they feel about that? How do they feel about becoming their father? Or for the little boy, how does he feel about not being allowed to become his father? Because he's the younger, he's not the heir. So, you know, does this, does this impact who's come to rescue them? Does this impact how they think about the rescue? Um, you know, they find themselves trying to help in the woods. Uh, they're not good at it. What's, What's up with that? And like you said, the, the privilege has kind of built a wall around them between them and the real world that they now live in. Uh, you know, how does that how does that impede their knowledge of this land that they've conquered and that they now inhabit? There's a lot of unanswered questions in a novella because there's no room to answer them. So <laughs> That is so interesting, though. You know, I do think you depict really interestingly both, you know, how power works um, interpersonally and in a society, you know, but also like how it works within an individual. And with the tyrant, you know, you almost get a sense of like power as being a drug, you know, mm -hmm. something that you cannot give up after a while and that you will mm -hmm. seek at all costs. Um, 
Yes. And then you get, yeah, the legacies of sort of like how um, children bring their own perspectives to the parenting that they receive and all that. Um, gosh. Yeah, this was such an interesting novella. And I really loved um, one last thing I would love to talk about, the imagery of the forest, because um, you have some really rich descriptions of um let's say the flora and the fauna mm-hmm. <laughs> that inhabit this forest. And I'm, I was reminded occasionally of like, um, you know, medieval tapestries, which the mm-hmm. cover of the book also kind of uh, hints at. So yeah, could you talk a little bit about, this question's getting big, but could you talk a little bit about visually building the forest and mm-hmm. like what maybe goes into cover design and, you know, the dialogue that goes into putting a, a, a cover on especially with cosmic horror, which is sort of un- unspeakable and unportrayable. How do you make a co- put a cover on that? <laughs> yeah, no, but that's a relevant question because, um, you know, this uh, I've you know got eight books or whatever out in the world, soon to be nine. Uh, by the end of this year, it'll be thirteen. But um, I've kind of experienced the whole spectrum of cover design, and my imagery was indeed very sort of medieval tapestry, medieval fresco, um, marginalia. The um the world as represented almost through art, not through realism. And you know, the forest helps contribute to that too. It moves around, it's it it tries to trick you, paths disappear, trees seem to shuffle across. Um, I was also thinking, of course, of the um that scary chapter in The Wind in the Willows, where Ratty and Mole are lost in the wild woods. So I was thinking, you know, can I make these woods wilder? Can I you know, and and I also had kind of the mental image of Gormenghast Forest, you know, the forest surrounding the castle and the mountain and, and how wild and dangerous that is to castle residents. Um, so when, uh, when we were talking about cover design, uh, my editor sent me um, kind of a list of portfolios for illustrators that Tor usually uses and asked me to rank them. And uh, there was a little questionnaire kind of about what are some colors that you think would be interesting to see on the cover? Uh, What are some covers that you've really liked recently? Um, What are some covers that you've hated and you will die if this goes onto the front of your book? And, um, you know, what are three powerful images or scenes that you think would be interesting to to put on there. So I got a questionnaire, but sometimes that doesn't happen. So for instance, for my debut novel, um, which was Cosmic Horror, they ended up going with kind of a very striking graphic uh, black and white design, which I loved. Um, and I didn't realize until about six months later that there were silhouettes hidden in it. I just like panicked and dropped the book. So that felt like Cosmic Horror. <laughs> but yeah, that one was a case where... Um, we hadn't really talked about the cover and I was waiting to see if that would happen. And of course it's your debut book. You don't know how the process goes. And a friend uh, messaged me to be like, Hey, your book is up for pre-order on Amazon. I was like, Oh, that's exciting. Does it have a cover? She was like, it does. So that was how I found out what the cover looked like. (laughs) So it's, you know, it's the whole spectrum. So Andrew Davis uh, illustrated and um, did the design for this cover and I love the way it looks and it tells you exactly what it is. You know, this is a forest. There's something weird about these animals though. (laughs) And we should probably feel a little bit threatened because humans have this instinct when we see bones or skeletons or whatever to be like, oh, that should really be on the inside, (laughs) on the inside. This unicorn should not have a bone face. I'm gonna just back away a little bit, you know? (laughs) 
<laughs> so I love that they did that. <laughs> yeah, it's beautiful. And I, I love sort of, you know, go back to sort of like the medieval visual language. Like it's a forest that's sort of peppered with like memento moris, you know, yeah. <laughs> that reminds well, you that like you could very easily die here. And... Yeah, that's that's the forest's big motto. It's it's wearing a T-shirt that says, ask me about how you could die in this forest. <laughs> And Barris is like, you know, I'm trying to ignore that. Uh, I, I have a job to do. And the forest is like, I'm just just reminding you, you know, again, in case you forgot. <laughs> and I loved I loved putting in the little temptations, um, you know, the not the puzzles, but the things that Barris is presented with where she's like, you know, I happen to know that's a trap. Good try, though. <laughs> so I love that the apples ended up on the cover as well. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's she's such a great uh, perspective to have on this kind of story, and I love particularly the way that you sort of like justify all of her short-term decisions and how they are ultimately oriented towards surviving this scenario that I am in right now. And then we'll think about surviving the next one. And she's this really good mix of like pragmatic, but also just like unstoppable that, <laughs> that I really love. So thank, thank you for you. gifting us with her and with this book. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it was absolutely lovely. And I enjoyed it so much. <laughs> thank you. I'm delighted to hear that. I hope people enjoy it. <laughs> I do too. And I think they will. So, you know, this is a great time to turn to our listeners. It's your turn now. You're going to check out The Butcher of the Forest. Uh, when you hear this on Leap Day, Happy Leap Day, this book will be in the world. Um, so please go check it out. Head to your favorite library or independent bookstore, wherever you like to go for books. Thank you for joining us. It is now time to close this chapter. It's time to close this chapter of Turn the Page. Join us for the next episode. Thank you.